We're going to get into um, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Um, This is the second to last week. Next week, we will will land the plane on this and and then start into a a new series the, the weekend after. The Sunday after. So turn in your Bibles to page, uh, the black Bibles in the room, page 923, or your Bibles, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. It comes right after Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians, and then after that is Colossians uh, or Thessalonians. If you've hit those, you've gone too far. Turn on the app on your phone. Whatever it is that you need to do, let's read God's Word together this morning. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 9. This is kind of like mid-thought block for Paul, but it's like it's really dense here. So we wanted to just slow down and take a little bit of time through what God's Word says in Philippians 4, verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, in the Lord. Notice that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is coming on the heels of him saying in verse 1, Stand firm in the Lord. And in verses 3 and 4, or 2 and 3 rather, uh, to agree in the Lord as there's division in the local church that he's writing to. And then he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That word supplication means we ask God for supply. We ask him to supply our needs. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, look at this list, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things or meditate. Set your mind on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in my life, Paul writes, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you or you'll recognize that he is already with you. This is God's word. Father, um, speak to us through your word. Open our eyes to see the truth and the reality of Jesus, how near he is to us. Uh, Help us to flesh out how this um, hits the everyday contours of our everyday lives. Uh, Liberate us from the fears and the anxieties and the the addictions and uh, the the, the struggles uh, that each of us carry in this room. Help us to set our hope on you and to stand firm in you. In Jesus' name, amen. To rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, to rejoice in the Lord always. That first command there uh, from God through Paul in verse 4. It's to learn to see and to learn to interpret. Every circumstance, every experience in your life as an invitation to worship. Think about it. To learn how to rejoice in the Lord is to learn to see and recognize, name the events of your life, the experiences that you've had, and then begin to interpret those things as invitations to worship. So I want to ask you this question. Do you have a theology, uh, what you believe about who God is, what you believe about what he's done, what you believe about who you are and your place in the world? Do you have a theology that functionally says from God and to God and through God, that's quoting scripture, are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that 
Does that represent your theology? Not just your like expressed, confessed theology, but also like the functional theology of how you live your life and the way that you respond to various events around you. I'll ask it a different way. Are you able, are you willing to see every experience of your life as an invitation to dependence? Are you able? Some areas yes, some areas no, not so much. Or maybe for you are, you, are you willing? Is your heart, is your head, are you open to seeing every experience of your life, both the good and the ugly, as invitations to dependence, to, to more and more and more trust of God? What if hardship was the obvious way to worship? What if hardship in our life is not representative of God's disapproval, is not representative as much of God's discipline, though it might be at your own hand. What if we began to see the hardships in our life as invitations from God ourself, or from, from God himself, rather? That he takes us where we don't want to go in our life. We're just trying to get away from it. He takes us where we don't want to go in order to produce something in us, a kind of transformation within us that can't be had by any other means. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, so faith has been granted to you, but also that you should suffer for his sake. So what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying here is that some of our suffering is gift. We don't think like this in our culture in our world. We see suffering as something to be avoided, something to move away from. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't like uh, move toward health in some areas of our life. But what if there are particular avenues and areas of our lives where the suffering that we are endure- enduring is invitation to worship, each circumstance of life an invitation to remember the goodness of God, to remember the presence of God, to remember who he is, So where we experience blessing, we look to him and we say, thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have provided the relationship that I so desperately wanted. Thank you for providing for the the, the liberation from addiction that I'm so desperately wanting out of. Thank you for uh, giving me this benefit. Thank you for providing the home. Thank you for providing meals. Thank you for providing people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And then also in suffering, like I... I'm not experiencing it right now, Lord, but I know based on the past, based on my life, based on the way that I can now see you ordering my steps, I know that you will provide. And so as we endure hardship, as we suffer either by our hand or at the hand of another person or just through the, uh, the circumstances of life and the way things kind of happened, we see suffering as opportunity uh, to worship. Uh, in uh, I'm going to tell you uh, I'm going to tell you I'm just going to let you in uh, to my to my world a bit over the past uh, few months and just kind of like where I've been and I want you to know this um, that I'm not the uh, I'm not the hero of this story by any stretch of the imagination so don't go there in the way that you're viewing me I don't I don't believe that you guys put me on a pedestal but I'm also doing work to like get myself off the pedestal uh, as well but I I want this story of just how I've been doing internally to show you how Jesus is the hero so he's the hero I am not and that's not a funny way of me manipulating you either 
uh, I began to realize uh, in April, mid-April, that during this like season of, uh, of COVID that I was like in the throes of burnout. Um, I, I began to um, look at like some, some levels of burnout psychologically, just kind of like how they show up in people's lives and present themselves. And I, and I recognized like, whoa, man, you're not just like halfway, you're like three quarters of the way. Like you're getting crispy, uh, like burnt. Um, and it began to manifest itself in some really uh, like troubling ways internally. Um, uh, just total like thinness emotionally. Um, a, a kind of emotional exhaustion that I hadn't really experienced or expressed or, 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 um, or, or like uh, given voice to um, in my life. And I began to see like unhealthy patterns, how I had let go of my own disciplines, prayer, time in the word, like spilling my guts before him, confessing sin, both known and unknown. Um, I began to just let go of my, my personal disciplines. And I began to like the work I was doing and the word that I was consuming was for other people, but it wasn't for my own soul. And I, and I began to come to the end of myself. And some of you got a front row seat uh, to that. And it took me a while to see it. But by God's intervention, by him showing me, I began to, to, to finally like do some business with my own internal unhealth. Okay, so I'm going to return to this story in just a little bit. But look at verse 1. Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, verse 4 of chapter 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. The command is always. And then he reiterates it. He repeats it. Again, I will say rejoice. I wasn't experiencing any of that in mid-April, May, early May. Um, basically, like just tag April 15th to May 15th. I was, in, I was not in a great spot. Um, he says, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, or let your gentleness also, it could be translated that way, be known to everyone. And he says, the Lord is at hand. He says, the Lord is at hand. So as you stand firm, church, like Paul has um, written to the Philippians here in verse 1, he entreats them to stand firm and to agree. As you stand firm, as you work through division and suffering, as you seek to worship uh, Jesus in all of life, be sure uh, that you are devoting yourself to understanding the why beneath the fruit of your life, the why beneath your attitudes, the why beneath the dysfunction in your relationships. Are you getting to the, the, the root issues? Are you just kind of topically addressing things? Well, I need to put a filter on my computer and I need to use my cell phone less and I need to just be nice and patient. Or are we actually like getting down into the root causes and understanding the whys that are driving our own lives? It's nice, like, that, that it's nice, church, that you say that God is faithful. Um, it, it, that's often like a, a very shallow way of Christians kind of like addressing some of the turmoil in their lives. And we kind of comfort ourselves with these little trite sayings where we say things like God is faithful or God provides. Um, and these things are true and they're cliches for a reason because they're true. But don't be surprised that if you say something like that to me or to someone else uh, in this fellowship who, who is con trying to connect the issues of our everyday life to the gospel, that we ask you to explain, like, well, tell me about that. How is he faithful? 
Like, what if we were a church who began to kind of dig in with each other a little bit and, and, and say, and, and, and invite people to reveal the inner workings of the heart and the life. And we say, we, we say, well, tell me about how he's faithful. Tell me about how you believe that he'll provide. How have you seen him provide in the past? See, we've got opportunity to show our reasonableness. We've got opportunity also to show our, our, our gentleness in each situation. And where we do, let's do so. Um, we know the destructive nature of unreasonableness. Everyone with a little kid can, can articulate the, uh, the, the can, can give us example of what it is to throw a tantrum or be unreasonable. Um, reasonableness generally has community health in view. Unreasonableness generally has self at center, selfish wants at center. And so in late COVID, that's just how I'm like determining the first quarter of 2020, like pre-COVID, mid-COVID, post-COVID. In mid-COVID, late COVID, internally, externally, so everything kind of going on in me and coming out of my life, I was having some tantrum moments for sure. Um, emotionally thin, I've already said this, like not resilient. It just felt like another thing would, would break me and they're like, thing, or would like send me over an edge that I wasn't used to emotionally or, or like I was very reactive rather than responsive around my family, not resilient. My thinking was leaning hard in a negative direction, which is what happens usually in the midst of burnout is your thinking really starts to gravitate toward negativity around people and around uh, circumstances socially all that I wanted to do uh, was withdraw and retreat from relationships places where I would be known the last place that I could imagine being me Jared um, was to stand up here and be seen by you like that was the last place that I wanted to be in April and May and it, and what I was interpreting was that this was not a safe place for me to like come with my brokenness, come with my weakness, come with my humanity. But what happens in burnout is that our thinking and our way of living, it drifts hard. Maybe swings would be a better word than drifts to self at center. And I was kind of the, the son of my solar system in some profound ways. And so I began to measure things by how is it going to affect me and how is it going to cost me and what is it going to feel like? And these kinds of consumer-oriented questions became a guiding principle of my inner life, of my thinking. Um, and so, like, how in the world could a guy like me fight my way out of this paper sack and, and rejoice when my soul was like in a place where it just was thin and, 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 and um, strength was like not a descriptor of how I felt internally. I had to remember something, and thankfully the Holy Spirit is faithful. God himself, the Spirit, is faithful to uh, consistently remind us that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is present with us. And so I became aware of his voice and his presence kind of whirring deep in my guts, assuring me that the Lord is at hand, like this text says. That the Lord is at hand, that he's imminent. This means that Jesus Christ is present. 
This means that Jesus Christ is not dead, he's alive, and he's not just alive and displaced or far off, but he's alive and he's present, and as scripture says, he's watching over us, not to catch us like Santa when we do bad, but he's watching over the course of our life to correct us. Peter, his apostle, says that he's the great overseer of our souls. He is the good shepherd, as the apostle John calls him. Jesus Christ is personally acquainted with grief and with longing. And in my case, it was a comfort to know that Jesus had experienced emotional exhaustion. He knows what it is to feel vexed. He knows what it is to to feel misunderstood or to be misunderstood, to experience anguish, to feel weary from giving. He was human. Jesus Christ knew that his father was imminent, which means that if we're in Christ, if we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, as the scriptures teach us through faith, that the father and the spirit are both present and available to you and I in our moments of longing, our moments of anxiety, our moments of anguish, he is present. Do we see him? Jesus' joy wasn't in his circumstances. His joy was in his closeness to his father. His circumstances didn't end up very well for him, if you remember. Taken to a cross and brutalized, murdered. His joy was derived in his closeness to his father. In three hard years of ministry, he would often escape. He'd get to a quiet place wherever he could go. It often seemed desperate. He had to go looking for restoration of his joy. And how would he find it restored? He'd find it restored through connection to his father. He would find his joy restored through connection to his father. Dependent prayer, spilling his guts, being known by the father laying it down. Through Jesus' through example, that's how I knew where to go uh, to find it too. Just reading him and seeing his life come forward on the, on, on the pages of the gospel. See, when we feel most disconnected from our life source, when we feel most disconnected from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is when we experience the most and the strongest anxiety. And Paul here is going to speak to anxiety. He's going to say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, it's beyond just being able to like, Oh, I got it, dialed. It'll show up here. It'll go away there. I can bring it back here. It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our control. The peace that comes from God, the shalom that comes from God, I'll define that word in a moment, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety is everywhere. Anxiety is a new, uh, I think in the last like 10 to 15 years, anxiety has become kind of a, a, a guiding word, even in some ways defining generations of people. Uh, in the Western world in particular. A uh, definition, I think, that is helpful of anxiety is this. Anxiety is apprehension that is caused by danger, apprehension caused by misfortune or error, uneasiness of mind respecting some uncertainty, a restless dread of some, ease, of some evil. Um, the word anxiety in English is derived from a Latin word, angier, and it means to choke. Anxiety takes its name from the word that means to choke. 
That's so much of what anxiety is as we experience it, is it not? It's a kind of choking. Um, I have misunderstood. I've been ignorant to the reality of uh, anxiety in my own life until about two months ago. Um, I would have, like, laughed you out the door. I'm not anxious. Um, But I have a confession to make, particularly to those of you who struggle with anxiety, whether it's a generalized anxiety disorder, whether it's chronic anxiety, whether it's acute forms of anxiety. uh, I have personally and internally, I might not have said this to your face, but I viewed anxiety as weakness. I viewed those who struggle with anxiety as weak, and I viewed anxiety as weakness. That's the the lens through which I've chosen and I've learned um, to see it. But what I didn't know that was my, that my impulsive need to just do something during COVID when the church can't meet and so trying to um, like keep people together and I'm bearing the weight of that and shouldering that weight on my own shoulders, not allowing God to be the overseer of our souls, but trying to move into that space. My responsiveness to just do something and to go, go, go and for my mind to be thinking on overdrive constantly and, my, and just my doing to be frenetic and my thinking to be frenetic, that was an anxious response for me. My desire to just jump into action was a response of anxiety. My tendency was anxious, and it was born from a place that I've begun to discover is a desire for control. It's a desire to, it's a, it's a, it's a place internally where, um, where, where I am functionally believing. So I might say something different with my mouth, and we often have gaps between what we say we believe and how we af- actually live, that the gospel can move in and fill. Uh, but I would, I would have said, no, I'm not anxious. But I was believing with my lifestyle, as I'm seeing things kind of spin out of control, that if I could just grasp control here, if I could just keep people together by my strength, that everything's going to be okay. But wait a second, isn't God always with me? Isn't he always present in all situations? Yes, absolutely he is. But that is not the reality that I was living from. I was living as if I was alone. I was living as if I was orphaned. And if the outcomes that I thought I needed were going to come to pass, it would all rest on my shoulders. This is total anxiousness. There's a quote from a man named Paul Miller who I think just puts like a helpful definition to, to, um, to anxiety in the life of a follower of Jesus. Maybe not even a follower of Jesus, but in his book, A Praying Life, he says anxiety is self on its own. Anxiety is self alone. You alone, that's anxiety. When we begin to depend internally on ourselves to provide, to meet all of the needs... That is anxiousness working itself out in our lives. It eventually will work itself out in in our lives. Another person has said anxiety is uh, imagining your future, but Jesus is not in it. Anxiety is self on its own. Notice how Scripture teaches us to use anxiety. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 6, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious. But, like, not but, there's, there's no exception clause there at all. Don't be anxious except 
if things go totally south for you and she breaks up with you, then you can be anxious. Or don't be anxious unless you see your kid like physically assault another kid. Then your perfect kid is no longer perfect and all your dreams are destroyed. Then you can be, for them, are destroyed to justify yourself, uh, right? Because that's where we tend to go in some of those moments. Then you can be anxious. No, Paul actually says, do not be anxious. But Paul, as soon as you say, don't be anxious, I start to feel a little bit anxious because you just told me not to be anxious. So you're not helping me here. But Paul doesn't say, Paul says, stop being anxious. Do not be, the be there is in the perfect present tense. Do not be anxious. So what he's saying to the Philippians is stop being anxious. Have you learned to recognize and name the sources of your own anxiety and then to use them as an opening for prayer? Have you kind of gotten to that place where you're able to identify, man, this is like an anxious response. I'm fearful of something. I, I, uh, something's slipping out of my control. I'm afraid of a certain outcome. I'm afraid of a certain person. I'm afraid that I'll be seen in a certain way. Have you begun to recognize and name the sources of your anxiety and then to use them as an opening for prayer? See, my rushing about during COVID was actually an opportunity for dependence, but I didn't see it. The Philippians, as Paul is writing to them here, they are anxious. Their hair is on fire, about two ladies in the church who are at each other's throats, and now people are taking sides and dividing the church. They're stressed about this. They're anxious about how they're going to be treated, how they're going to be seen. Will this all work out? Is this going to break up our happy little family? There's a kind of anxiousness here that's driving them. Not only that, but they're anxious because they're being mistreated by Jews. They're being mistreated by Romans. They're marginalized in their society. And so people don't like them. And so their people-pleasing nature uh, was probably working against them at times. Their fear of the future. Will we be okay? Will we retain our property? Will I retain my job? Will I I retain my life? Those are questions that, 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 that bring up a, a significant amount of anxiety in us. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul, their spiritual dad, their spiritual father, he was writing to them from prison. So are we even going to have you anymore? Are we going to mourn your loss too? Because we keep losing people. Instead, it's like Paul, Paul says to them, I know that you're present tense anxious. I know that you're anxious but let that anxiousness double bounce you into prayer. Gideon, my son, he's almost 10. He's an expert double bouncer on the trampoline. You know what a double bounce is? It's when two people kind of match their bounces, and when one person just slightly delays past the second person, they bounce, and then that trampoline will spring the second bouncer up like half as high at least as they ordinarily would. You'll see it in your kids because they'll start to roll down the windows when you, when you double bounce them a little bit. What if we begin to use anxiety and we use its momentum to actually springboard us to the Father, not away from Him. By learning the sources of our anxiety and being able to name them, being able to create distance between us and them, 
to be able to speak to God in light of them? How would you have me respond to this rather than just in this reactive posture all the time? We can begin using our anxiety to our advantage rather than fighting anxiety, rather than suppressing it, rather than avoiding our anxiety, rather than smothering it with pleasure. We can learn to propel us right into the heart of God himself. We talk to him in prayer. We spill our guts before him. We ask him to supply our needs as we step back from this circumstances or the suffering that we are enduring. We acknowledge his presence and his providing in a spirit of gratitude. And we fall with all of this stuff, present tense, right into God's presence. And then we begin to recognize who we're with and who cares for us. We begin to recognize and become aware of the the situations in our lives. And our heart begins to shift and our heart begins to turn. Where does it turn? Our heart turns right into the face of the one who cares for our every need for all time. I am almost 42 years old and I'm standing here before you this morning. Why? Because God has provided for me. Day in, day out. Has my life been wreckage at points? 100%. Absolutely. And he continues to call me to himself and he continues to see me through and he continues to provide for me. And as we turn, as we bend our hearts, that's the words of Paul Miller, as we bend our hearts, let let anxiety spring us into his presence, right into the face of the one who cares for our every need for all time, his shalom, his peace that is not dependent on circumstances, just lands and begins to rest right on top of us. He becomes imminent. We know he's there with us. We don't get it. It's not a formula, but it is a reality that we begin to experience as we experience his comfort. And then peace begins. His peace surrounds us and begins to create a sense of distance between us internally and what makes us afraid like a shield for our weary and anxious hearts and minds. Jesus would teach the apostles and John would record it in John 14:27. He would say to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace, God's peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give. So I'm not going to even necessarily remove you from circumstances. I'm just going to let my peace settle in on you, and I am going to keep you in the midst of hardship. I'm going to keep you faithful. I'm going to keep you focused. I'm going to turn you around back to me. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because he would give final words to his disciples before he ascended to the Father that would say, I am with you always. How long? Always. How long? To the very end of the age. Present with you. And so as we dwell on the imminent reality that God is with us, that's the name of Emmanuel, a title for Jesus, God with us, we move further into the space of freedom where we regain our perspective and we begin to abide. We begin to dwell with an awareness of the presence of God and how he is providing for us. And we remember that God is true to his promise never to leave us or forsake us. And we recognize that Jesus, as we read the Gospels, has not abandoned us, but rather he's actually pursued us. He didn't quit halfway either. He went the entire way. 
Jesus stayed in pursuit up a hill with a cross at the end of his road. But the end of his road is the very beginning of our enduring hope. And he would pour out his entire life and give us his perfect record of righteousness through faith and thereby overwrite our disqualifying record of unrighteousness. And he would show us the way. So he's not just gotten us into the family, but he's going to move us along in our transformation. And he did all of this before you were born. He chose you, he called you, knowing every liability that you have, and he determined, I will have her. I will have him. They will be mine. And he means to comfort you and I every day of our life and continue, continue, continue to confront us with the reality of his presence and not just with the reality of his presence, but the reality of his goodness. Constant he is. Knowing our life. He counted the costs, and all of his assets, now mine and yours, and all of our liabilities laid on him, and he is glad about it. Hebrews says that for the joy before him, your and I's renewal, our transformation, our presence in his family, for that joy set before him, he endured the cross, and not only did he endure the cross, but he endured the wrath of the Father on unrighteousness. And Jesus' will and the Father's will and the Holy Spirit, this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in authority, different in personhood, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this will is aligned. So Jesus isn't just like, Dad, Dad, no, spare him. I got him. I love him. But this is the Father's will, that justice for you and I would be served on the back of his Son so that our sentence and so that our condemnation could be commuted and would be commuted. And so in light of that reality, Paul is writing to the Philippians here. And he says, finally, as he begins to kind of do a preacher's close here, I'm landing, but not really. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, look at this list, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and what you have received and heard and seen in my example. Paul is constantly calling the, the Philippians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He says, practice these things, and as you give yourself to this way of life, you will become awakened to more and more understanding and awareness that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are present with you. And so when we are in the grip of anxiety and depression, and when we are in the grip of burnout and pride, when we are in the grip of, in the midst of, of heartache and grief, when rejoicing feels like an impossibility to us, when it seems like we have nothing but unmet expectations, the good news of Jesus Christ is there fresh on a new day to redirect our hearts and to console us back into the embrace of our Father. And not just our Father, but our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And not just the Father and Son, but also the Spirit who is our comforter and counselor. God paid it all so that we could be reconciled and both justice for sin and mercy for sinners could be simultaneously upheld. So Paul says, after giving this list, think on these things. 
We could say meditate on these things. Stay your mind. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Blessed is the man or the woman whose mind is stayed on the Lord. As we stay and meditate our minds on these things, we begin to experience the peace of God ruling our circumstances, ruling our hearts, ruling our minds, and ruling our relationships. So Paul says, meditate, pray on whatever is true. What is more true than the man, Jesus Christ? Are you looking for someone to follow? Are you looking for next steps? Are you looking for a guide? It's not a businessman or a businesswoman out there. It's not a guru out there. It's the man, Jesus Christ. Follow the only man who is the true God. He is the way to peace with our Father. He is the truth that sets us free. And he is, life in him is abundant. He is the way and the true and the life. Don't just meditate on what is true, but meditate on whatever is honorable. Paul says Jesus is the king of the ages. How many ages? All of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. To Jesus be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Meditate on what is true. Meditate on what is honorable. Meditate on what is just. In the gospel, justice will be served for every sin, every abuse, every stolen dollar, every cutting word, every withheld apology. Justice for your every fault, justice for their every fault was poured out on Jesus Christ who stood in for you and I, us, his joy and crown who by faith stand on him. And don't just meditate on those things, Paul says, but meditate on whatever is pure. The scriptures say it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, pure, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And it was this one, Jesus Christ, who has, who has no sin, who became the purifying sacrifice for every sin of every sinner who repents and that from belief in him, our life is declared pure in the sight of God. And he's not just true, honorable, just, and pure, but he's also lovely. He bore our shame in his body on the cross and true love lays down his life for the future of his friends. And he's not just lovely, but he's also commendable. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but all that stands in front of those who are in Christ who trust him by faith is transformation and commendation. Well done. Good and faithful servant will be the word that each of you hears on your final day. And not just that, but he's excellent. Scriptures say we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the church is, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then Paul says, meditate on that which is worthy of praise. And in Philippians 4.19, he's sure of this with the Philippians, that my God, present, will supply every need of yours, every need, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So church, remember, each and every circumstance that we face in life is an invitation to remember the goodness of God in the gospel. In our blessing, look at how you have provided. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And in our suffering, I'm doubting, I'm swaying, I'm faltering. But I can look back on the past record of your presence with me and understand with as much belief and faith as I can muster in the moment. Father, you will provide. You have provided my greatest need through Jesus Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Even in hardship, I can rejoice 
in you. Father, in hardship and in joy, help us to rejoice. To come to your word, to drink from this well, that our soul would be renewed and restored. For those of us who are struggling and suffering, for those of us who are fatigued, on our, loss, on our last leg, unsure of the future, call us to meditate on the life of Christ, to do so simply, <clears throat> to not assume the pressure to put all of the things together and make all of the things work out. Help us to be responsible in the moment. And ultimately, we do that by being present to you and present to the people in front of us. So help us to be a church of presence and that we would be a church who abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen.